Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-awakened one. <clears throat> so there's quite a bit to get through, really, of an evening. So, <laughs> um, I just want to cover at least uh, three areas. Uh, the first one is, um, you know, to revise, and for some of you, maybe come as anew the teaching of the Buddha on how we condition ourselves. And then to talk a bit about metta and what we call the illimitables. And then finally to say something about forgiveness, which we'll be uh, practicing tomorrow. Um, there are two things about the, the Buddhist teaching in terms of um, our conditioning. Um, all our conditioning is self-made. And that's a bit... That's a bit uh, difficult to sort of grasp at first but all the information and all the experiences that you have in the world uh, come at you as it were and there's an inner process where you begin to react to it within yourself and create the conditionings that uh, you end up with so all these things that we that we tend to suffer from um, you know, the depression, anxiety, all that sort of stuff. And on the positive side, the sort of over-excitement, indulgence, all that. All that part is actually self-created. You can go further and say that the whole world is self-created if you include your, your body, because your body filters out what comes in. So if you're blind, you obviously don't live in a visual universe. Yeah? <clears throat> and then, of course, the... The society you live in also filters things out by its own prejudices. Uh, but everything that comes to us is then worked upon within ourselves. And although people influence us, and our society influences us, the very language influences us, the fact is that we end up creating our own worlds. And uh, even here now, you see, in this room, uh, Theravada Buddhism isn't an idealism. It doesn't say that this room doesn't exist. Like when we all walk out, it doesn't disappear. It has its, <laughs> it has its own reality, inverted commas. But um, it does say that the room that we experience is peculiar to us. So actually speaking, uh, there are ten different rooms here. Because each one of us has a different perspective on it, different feeling about it, and so on. And in that way, you begin to understand that we're actually living in our own world. Uh, and they're and they're they're parallel, sort of. They're not, <laughs> they're not always harmonious. But when you, when we realise that we're living in our own world, then of course the accent then is to throw the responsibility upon us to do something about it. So that gets rid of all blame. So you can't blame. And there comes a point of, shall we say, maturity where you realise that you can't you can't continue to blame uh, your parents. Your, the society and all the rest of it for the state of mind that you actually 
have to bear with. And um, that taking of personal responsibility about oneself is actually the, you know, the, the true beginning of the spiritual path because that's beginning to take a hold of your life. That's the beginning, that's the beginning where you decide what changes you're going to make and how you're going to make them. And this meta practice that we're doing is, is part and parcel of that. So where does that begin, you see? Where does that process begin? It begins with an intention. See? That's why, uh, for those of you who've practiced Vipassana, seeing your intentions is that crucial point where you have the space to see whether this intention is wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's doing you any good or not. And it's in that little space that you can say, no, I won't go down there, or yes, I will. If, you, if for one moment you lose that moment of intention, it very quickly moves into identification. So what was a wanting becomes I want. And at that point, really, it's virtually impossible to stop the action flowing out from the intention. Yeah. So <clears throat> every time, you see, you walk past Costa Coffee and Starbucks... <laughs> And the coffee grabs hold of your nose. See, there's want, you see. If you're not quick enough, you're in there. So you're having a cup of coffee, whether you liked it or not, whether you wanted it or not, whether you needed it or not. <laughs> and it's that, it's those habitual actions that uh, we get caught up in that we have to come back on. And the way we do it is by having this very sharp mindfulness to see intentions as it arises. So the role of intention is crucial in our conditioning. The next step that we've already touched upon is the process of it being brought from a potential into an actual. So if I stand outside Costa Coffee thinking I'd like a cup of coffee, I'd like a cup of coffee, nothing's happening, you see. Those are just, that's the power of that old conditioning of, of, uh, of wanting coffee. Hmm? And if, as long as I stay there with it, no matter how uncomfortable it may feel, actually nothing's happening. Nothing's happening in terms of it being developed. But if we stay with that and wait for it to die away, then some energy within that conditioning has been uh, released. Some energy has been destroyed because it's not been re-empowered. So there is a moment when having decided to, uh, having, having had the intention come up to have this, this coffee, there's a moment of impulsion. There's a moment where an energy goes into that intention and it manifests. Huh? That energy is your will. And the Buddha goes as far as to say that it is will that he calls action. So what you do is not so important, but how you do. You know, it's, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. You know that one? <laughs> so it's a case of catching the intention and holding it so that you don't fall immediately into willing it whereby you reinforce that old habitual action. So <clears throat> that's a sort of uh, crucial understanding in terms of the Buddha's psychology. And, and, it, and it comes to, it comes in, and those of you who know the, the psychology of dependence origination, where he's putting his finger very clearly on where the problem lies. See, it lies at that point of tanha, some of you will know that word, of desire. But these words that come from scripture when you, you know, translated from one language to another is always, is always difficult and it's translated normally as craving which seems to me always a little bit over the top because sometimes you just, you just want it and you just do it. You, know? <laughs> you can't sort of 
label it as craving. But what they're trying to do in these translations is distinguish between a desire and intention which is wholesome and one which is unwholesome. So there is a word in the Buddha's language uh, which is also translated as desire, but there's a choice of it being uh, being it wholesome or unwholesome. Whereas this other word that you get in dependent origination is always unwholesome because it's always coming from the self. Now, this self that we talk about, uh, the teaching about not-self, um, it's not a, you have to be careful, it's not a denial, uh, it's, not a, it's not a metaphysical proposition. The Buddha's not saying there is no self. It's a teaching tool. He's saying whatever you experience, if it's arising and passing away, how can it be you? And it's that, it's that way of looking at things that begins to make you realize that all these things that you've identified with are actually immaterial, they're not substantial. They don't account to anything, any substance in the universe. So we're in this flow of events. At its most obvious is this body, you know. I mean, this isn't the body we were born with. It may have a sort of regular blueprint running through it, but it definitely is not the same body. And if we're to believe it, it's not the same body we had seven years ago. See? So next time you look in the mirror, you see, you look in your eye and say, now you weren't here seven years ago. <laughs> and just keep, just keep acknowledging the fact that the body itself is in a constant process of change. And yet we identify with it in very deep ways. You know? So when death approaches, it's sort of freak out time. And that freaking out, that, that, that terrible shock that comes when it's our turn to go, is the measure of that attachment, is the measure of that identity. So this, um, this tanha is uh, those desires which come from wrong understanding, those desires which arise out of, out of greed and hatred. Greed here is that whole business of acquisition and, and hatred is that whole business of aversion. Uh, actually it's translated as aversion uh, because again we don't have a word which um, grasps the, the, the total meaning of the original Pali word but it also includes fear, you see. It's, it's an, it, when you come across something which is threatening you, you either want to obliterate it, annihilate it, if it's too big, you run for it, right? <laughs> so, so you've always got this fight and flight uh, syndrome, and that's included in this, in this word. So whenever you hear people talk about greed and aversion, this aversion includes the fear that we, that we have. So <clears throat> the role of... Um, Understanding the role of intention in the process of our psychology and understanding that nothing actually happens until we empower it, yeah, until we actually do something, either as a train of thoughts or uh, a process of speech or an action, uh, has it got a conditioning effect? Hmm? If we don't empower an intention, then the energy with which it comes is just allowed to dissipate. And that's basically how you get rid of habits and, uh, and uh, mental states that you don't want. Hmm? And that's through, uh, that we learn very clearly through the process of vipassana, but it's something you take out into daily life. It's not just something you do on the sitting stool. Yeah? It's something, whenever something negative comes up, it's the acknowledgement of it and just bearing with it. See, bearing with it. Uh, acknowledging it, feeling it, but not doing anything. That's the point, not doing anything and just allowing it to uh, dissipate, the energy dissipates. Yeah. 
Now here, of course, we have another thing that we're doing, which is the good side of desire, which is coming from another centre. That's the important thing to understand. There is within us a different centre, call it Buddha, call it uh, your, your wisdom centre, doesn't matter what you call it, but it's coming from a different place than the one which is, which is self-seeking. And metta is what you're developing from that centre, you see. And um, it's important if you practice vipassana always to do metta. Although in, uh, in say, the Zen tradition, uh, they'll say that compassion arises naturally with wisdom, uh, which is true, which is true, but uh, it does help to have a practice which, as it were, just eggs that little movement on. And in the, <coughs> in the Buddhist teaching, we've got this eightfold path, and the first one is this right understanding. It's in right understanding that uh, vipassana is placed. So vipassana is seeing things as they really are. And then there has to be this attitudinal change. It has to drop systemically. Right? It's, a syst- it's a systemic movement from understanding into the heart as an attitude. And that's, your, that's where it begins then to manifest outward through your thought and your speech and your actions. And that's your next steps. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Huh? If it stops anywhere on that path, then the spiritual life gets gets stilted it becomes it becomes sort of twisted now people who practice vipassana without metta the danger is that this aloofness that you must have in vipassana this um, equanimity which as it were you find from that observation post within yourself where you can feel and see things and you're watching things very quickly or very shall we say the 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 danger is it slips into indifference and once it becomes indifference, then it moves to callousness, and basically you've lost the path. So somehow, to keep this equanimity, there has to be another practice which re-engages that observer within you into the psychophysical organism, right, and then into the world. And that's what Metta does. It helps you to re-engage. Hmm? <coughs> Uh, samatha is a slightly. Di- this is a samatha practice. Yeah. This is some, but but it's but it's more pointed to the outflow, to the yeah, to the engagement. You see, the illimitables. Uh, samatha itself is really uh, more to do with us, you know, finding this calmness, this peace within us, which again is is a great help, and it's definitely of a, of advantage if you're going to do the pasana to have that easy basis of entering into a very quiet, relaxed, focused state. Huh? Uh, but it's not necessary in itself uh, to do Vipassana. And again, Samatha, just like this practice, can, be very, can become very uh, selfish. Um, you can practice this to the point where you begin to really get blissed out. And one of the things about doing that is that, you know, you realize that these internal uh, blissful states uh, are not dependent on anything out there. You see, then you begin to understand why people can just, you know, live in rags, live under trees, eat what they're given because it doesn't matter anymore because their bliss is within them. You see, the problem with that, of course, is that it it's not connected to the world. So when such a person enters the world and stands on their foot, an enormous amount of anger. <laughs> 
generalize. <laughs> and that's, that's the danger of doing something like this without the purification process of vipassana. Now, um, uh, living in ordinary daily life, living sort of, you know, in, in the world, um, there's that, that also, that really becomes impossible because you have to engage with people. So you have to put this into practice. And the heart will grow quite naturally with that. And it actually, to my mind, grows much better because of that interconnectedness, you see. So uh, we'll come to that a little bit later, I think. Samatha, there's two types of meditation, right? The vipassana is this investigation of ourselves. Uh, and the samatha practice is to do with establishing, creating and establishing beautiful states of mind. See? So uh, I'm sure you've heard of people looking at candles and uh, <laughs> breathing, heavy, you know, regulated breathing. All those are, are little tricks to get this very one-pointed singleness of attention. And the mind, or the um, the mind, becomes like a focus, like a uh, like a laser beam. You see, and it creates this lovely energy within you. Is that like what mantras are? Yeah, mantras are the same. Anything like that, uh, coloured circles, gazing upon the beloved's face, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> anything, anything which produces a beautiful state. But remember, if that beautiful state is dependent on something out there, then that's something out there always has to be there for this to arise. Mm. If it's created from within ourselves, then of course it's always there when we want it. You see? And that's the difference between what you might say is a worldly practice as opposed to a spiritual one. Mm. So now, um, recognizing metta. Um, as a practice which re-engages us, both with ourselves, it re-engages with ourselves and through ourselves into the world, uh, we have to be clear as to what this metta is, and we touched upon it uh, yesterday. So, it's, it's an attitude. Now, attitudes pre-exist emotions. Yeah? It's the heart's way of, of relating to something. And then the heart, as it were, begins to resonate and that's what we call an emotion, or, or um, um, that's the emotional feeling part of the attitude. Yeah? But the attitude is prior to that. Now, during your practice, you will have been moving from that attitude of wishing people well, but your heart isn't isn't responding. You know, it just feels tired or <laughs> fed up, <laughs> and what? And then you realise, ah, you see, this attitude is coming from somewhere behind or before the heart actually begins to resonate. Hmm? And uh, <coughs> the big mistake is to confuse those lovely feelings with goodwill. Because then you make the mistake of thinking, I'm not practicing goodwill unless I feel loving. You see? And that's where we get confused with an emotion and the actual attitudinal state, which is being in a state of goodwill with people. So you can see this is very different from uh, love which arises from attachments, right? So <clears throat> you have to be very careful here. Attachments gets a bad name in Buddhism, right? But you have, to, you have to make a distinction between something which is unskillful or unwholesome and something which is evil, right? <laughs> attachments aren't evil in the sense like murdering somebody, uh, but they are definitely unwholesome. 
So an attachment, say, a, a parent, a mother, to a child is absolutely natural. I can't imagine uh, a mother not having an attachment to their, to their child. <clears throat> but um, what happens is, of course, is that attachment puts a certain pressure on the child, you see, because the attachment is always wanting the child to be as the mother would want the child to be. And that's, that's where the problem lies, and that's why you get kicked back <laughs> teenage because of that contradiction. Now, uh, to, you know, to separate out the pure love that the mother has, which she also has for the child from the attachment, is, you know, is very difficult. Uh, but it's there, and the wise person will, will slowly distinguish between the one and the other, knowing that the one is actually turning the person into an object. Now, that's what an attachment does. Huh? Every time you do something out of an attachment, that person is being used to please you. They become an object. They've lost their humanity. Right? No matter how little it is, you're dehumanizing them. So the way that you overcome the attachment is always to be open to their point of view, to their state. And that stepping into their consciousness, their way of looking at life, is the act of love. That is the act of compassion, you see. Um, and it's obvious, uh, so attachment, you know, it, it, it has a bad name, but, but it's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not to be seen as evil, it's just to be seen as a consequence of delusion, of the way that we have um, relating to the world that we're in. <clears throat> and it's a case of recognising it, recognising, you know, what we're doing when we're with friends, when we're with uh, our uh, relatives and so on. You know, like you when, when you, when you see them, you know, just ask, what do you want? See, what do you want from them? Now, there's your, <laughs> there's your uh, desire coming from some place where they have to feed, feed into your lack. And this word lack is, is a very, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's often used as a translation for dukkha, which means, which is translated as satisfactoriness or as suffering. <clears throat> but what this word lack tells us is that there's an emptiness there and we're seeking to fill the emptiness with things from the outside world hmm? and of course it, they don't deliver they don't deliver so the word attachment in a sense is uh, it's a one way process yeah and in fact the word connection yeah. is it's both both that's right yeah yeah that's right and you and as i say you connect by being open to the other by you know is a just, just listening full-heartedly, open-heartedly, what the other has to say, yeah, and so on. And that, that cuts through, you see. And then, of course, you, you can feel um, perhaps a certain disappointment or a certain frustration or a certain fear when the person is not going to feed into your uh, emptiness, you see. So that's the, em that's the, the bad emptiness. That's not the, that's not the emptiness <laughs> of uh, Mahayana. That's something else. <clears throat> so you can see it's also not romance see romance is very specific isn't it you can't fall in love with anybody and everybody and that that is that is also a form of attachment that's two that's the joy that's the deliciousness of two personalities meeting at that point and it's very delicious you know but as you know it's often you know three months down the line you wonder what the hell you were doing <laughs> it's a lot of yes it faded 
And then there's, uh, and of course, uh, but it starts there, remember, and of course, if, if the relationship develops, and of course it develops into you know, a true love. <coughs> and it's not, uh, it's obviously not erotic love, but that's very, f- that's very um, uh, uh, flimsy and transient and, uh, um, and empty. If it's just, if you just, if you just practice making love, just for making love, it becomes an empty an empty experience because the whole of hum- the whole of the human being is not involved. You know, it's basically it's a prostitution. And I, I always love uh, Woody Allen's little comment on this. <laughs> he said, as, he says, as um, uh, s- sexual uh, sexual uh, pleasure is is you know by itself is an empty thing. It's an empty experience. But as empty experiences go. <laughs> So what is this uh, meta then, you see? Well, uh, just ask yourself, what would you want from a good friend? See? And just as those qualities come to you, then that's what meta is. See, whatever companionship, open-heartedness, and so on, all, all, the, all the, the pleasant things that you would want of a good and close friend, that's meta. So it is. And metta is actually connected to the word mitra, which means friend. Now you can see, this, um, this metta is your basic relationship to all sentient beings. Last night we practiced the, um, that awareness of just you know, relaxing into the present moment. And I, and I pointed that out as your default position. If we can keep coming back to that to that state of just being in the present moment with an empty mind, what do I mean by that? I mean no thought. Hmm? When, when you hear in Zen, uh, no mind, uh, they don't mean that you, you've lost it. <laughs> they just mean no thought. So if you can bring yourself every so often during the day, not just that meditation, but every day, just to sort of collapse, as it were, just draw yourself into the present moment, and you do that, uh, I find the easiest way to do that is by putting my attention on hearing. Just by putting my attention on hearing, I, I immediately come into the present moment. And because I'm, I'm hearing and listening, I'm not responding. So it's a, very, it's a position of real equanimity. It's a position of where I'm, I'm very open. Yeah? And the other trick I found was to put your attention on the right... Well, I'm a confused. On the, on, the <laughs> on the left side of the body. Right? Your right eye and your left side of the body. And that cuts out speech. It, it, it draws energy from the speech center of your, your, of your brain. It's quite magic, actually. You'd be surprised. <laughs> stop you talking. So, <clears throat> if, if, if we consider that to be the default position of the whole of our lives, out of which we rise, out of which we can see an intention, uh, know it to be wholesome, and then to move into action, right? The default position in terms of our relationship to... Uh, sentient beings, but specifically to human beings, is this meta. Because it's from that basic position that the other two illimitables arise. Hmm? Um, if you have a friend and they fall into bad times, you, you naturally feel, you actually want to help them. It's not, a, it's not a problem, is it? It just rises naturally out of your friendship. And if your friend, uh, you know, has good fortune and is happy, you're naturally happy for them. So sympathetic joy, reciprocal joy, um, all, all that joy in other people's joy arises naturally. You don't have to work at it. Huh? 
So that's why the Buddha really pushes this metta. I know that in later Buddhism they began to uh, develop much more the idea of compassion. <coughs> One can understand that because the Buddha's teaching is about suffering and the end of suffering. So the end of suffering, of wanting to put an end to suffering, is compassion. Huh? But in his original teachings, as it comes out in the, in the original scriptures, he's very much into this metta as a way. And the, the discourse on metta... Uh, really lays it out and he's, and he's asking us to constantly develop that attitude uh, throughout the whole day you know whenever we whenever we have a moment of time and think of how much how much time we have when you consider things like going from here to there or waiting for a bus or waiting at the lights or climbing upstairs or waiting for a friend if you add all those little bits together by the end of the day <clears throat> I think they come out to a couple of hours frankly and what we do is we just tend to let the mind wander, you know, let the mind go here and there and just complete waste of mental energy. It's during those times that you can bring these thoughts to mind and it has that effect. It's constantly developing this heart of goodwill. So, you know what you just said about compassion? Surely, what do you say, you would become more compassionate? You would be. Yeah. <coughs> That's what I'm saying. Oh, it w- it's, it's a natural thing. No, what I'm saying is that once the base of metta is there, mm, then uh, and you, you have a friendship with somebody, then you can understand that you don't have to try and be compassionate. It yeah. just arises naturally when you see them in a bad state. Mm. You want to help. Yeah? So uh, these uh, are called illimitables because um, there's meant to be innumerable number of beings. Uh, but more interestingly. Um, it's a bit like uh, numbers. You can always add one. Yeah? No matter how big your number is, you can always say, and one. So it's the same with love, compassion, joy, equanimity. Their, it, their, their development is indefinite. You can just keep on developing it, developing it, so long as you're, so long as you're awake. Hmm? And in fact, he says that, so long as you're awake, develop this, this attitude. You see? Now, uh, we haven't practiced, uh, you know, the compassionate part, uh, but basically it's very, very simple. You, you bring to mind people whom you know are suffering, and the, the phrase is, may you be free of suffering. It's as simple as that. And with joy, may you be joyful. May you continue to be joyful. May your joy increase. Yeah? Uh, we can't do that this weekend because we don't have the time for it. <clears throat> but you might, you might add it on to one of your... Um, uh, blessings if you wish completely up to you but at this stage I would really suggest that you know you keep it just as pure meta because as I say these other two things arise naturally now just as meta just as meta has its dark e- uh, enemy what's called its close enemy as attachment compassion has a close enemy too and that's grief we very quickly fall into a grief for somebody pity for somebody uh, instead of what compassion is, you know, and um, again, that grief comes with attachment because this person fulfills a role in your life, and when they go, it leaves a gaping hole. Right? Whether they whether they uh, fall into misfortune or whether they die or something like that, you're left with this with this sore uh, within your heart, hmm? and that's your grief. But compassion is actually a joyful emotion. It fills the heart with joy because, because of the help you're giving people. So if you sort of hear about some terrible suffering 
No, but what it what it um, what it sh- what I think it uh, it fills you with is it is a desire to do something, and that's when we get stuck with this um, uh, business of impotence, where we don't realise that you know we only have two rings around us: one of power where we can do something, one of influence where we can get others to do something about a situation, and finally there's only you know, you can't do anything. And if you can't do anything, then the frustration arises, driven by this, you know, uh, the sense of grief and, and wanting to do something. But that's actually based on a, a wrong appraisal of ourselves. It's actually an ego thing. This is, you know, and, and it's only when you, when you bear with your impotence and you realise that that's, it, that's, that's the only thing you can then do is offer these good wi- goodwill um, practices towards them and that's where you overcome that first because this is what you can do you know and hopefully it affects but uh, you'll know that grief is a uh, is a, uh, a subtle enemy of compassion especially when uh, say somebody dies and you grieve for them and because you equate your grief with the amount of love you have for that person, you can't stop grieving. Because every time your grief diminishes, you think you're, you no longer love them. And you get yourself into this, you know, this swirl down to, to a deep depression. But when you realize that the grief you're feeling is actually uh, the consequence of the attachment, then love allows the person to go. I mean, love is very liberating. Okay? Uh, and uh, <coughs> these are these are sometimes difficult for us to, to grasp because uh, because of that lack of distinction between compassion, love and grief. Uh, the obvious enemy, of course, is cruelty. I mean, that's, that's why cruelty is, is the worst thing you can do in, in, in the Buddhist thing. Is, and if you're cruel, the worst of hells is reserved for you. <laughs> you go down to the Avicii hell where you really get thumped about and because <laughs> you know, cruelty is the, is, the, is, the, is the exact opposite of what the Buddha is teaching and it's the same with uh, joy uh, sympathetic joy also has a subtle energy and that's, that's this excitement where actually you're, 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 getting, you're getting over joyful, over excited over something you see and uh, and to recognise that means that the, you don't get the you don't get the aftermath of indulgence. So this runs right the way through just ordinary joys of life. Um, remember that there's two there's two things that we have to do. First of all, we have to take the suffering out of pain. So there's always going to be physical pain, and for as long as we're not fully liberated, there'll always be some form of emotional pain. But that's not suffering itself. Suffering comes because of our relationship to that. Hmm? Our not wanting to be there, our aversion to it, fear of it and so on. But the other side of the coin is of course to, uh, is to take the indulgence out of pleasure, the indulgence out of, out of the joys of life. Uh, and if we don't do that, then we end up with the aftermath 
while you're enjoying something, fine, it's heaven, it's not a problem. It's afterwards. See? Afterwards, where you get the craving for it again, the desire for it, the frustration when you can't get it, the grief when you lose it, and the underlying anxiety of losing something that you're attached to. You know, I mean, that's, that's what a lot of our insurance industry is based on, you know, like when you go to, <laughs> when you go to uh, what was Dixon's, or was it now? I uh, can't remember. Uh, you know, they, yeah, that's right, when you, when you, uh, they con you into buying three-year guarantee <laughs> and, you, and you fork out more money for the guarantee than you do for the, for the, for the uh, electrical equipment you bought. So <laughs> so, um, the importance of metta is that it reconnects us, connects us properly to ourselves and to the world, and it's our, it's the default position, it's the sort of basic position we have for all these other beautiful mental states to arise. Hmm? And uh, this is underpinned because they're also called Brahma Vihara, and that means the dwelling place of the highest gods. And what we're saying by that is that it, it creates the beautiful mind and the bountiful heart. And that's how the gods live. You know, whether they exist or not, it's not a problem. But that's, that's the ideal, that's the idealism towards which uh, these practices are taking us. See? And uh, just, to, you know, we've talked about how often we should do it. You should do it all the time, whenever you can. But especially after, after your Vipassana sitting, to re-engage with the world, you see. So that's the, that's the sort of meta side of things. And included in that, uh, you know, we have to practice this forgiveness. So now, um, going back to that original statement that all the suffering that we uh, are experiencing is self-caused, then the things that come out through, um, you know, doing things which are harmful to others, harm done to us, and the harm we do to ourselves, all the suffering around that is also uh, self-created. And when we realize that, it's much easier to ask for forgiveness, it's much easier to forgive, and it's much easier to forgive oneself. So when we harm somebody, um, you know, it creates within us uh, a certain turbulence. Uh, you can't, the human heart cannot uh, see another person suffering uh, without itself falling into some negativity. And the, the worst one, of course, is callousness, where you're no longer connected to the suffering of another human being. And we've had that with, you know, going right back to the Nazis, right up to present day. As soon as you dehumanize somebody, uh, you, you've got, you, you have the wherewithal to, to create enormous suffering. Uh, for them, physical suffering. And that callousness comes back on us and it, and, it, uh, and it turns our hearts into stone. Yeah? So <clears throat> once we open up to the fact that we've done harm to somebody, uh, then there, there has to be those feelings of guilt and shame. Guilt is the, is the fear of consequences. Right? We're not talking here about existential guilt, you know, that I am essentially evil. <laughs> it's, it's more like, you know, if you do this sort of practice, if you do that sort of thing, uh, then the comeuppance will come at some point. And shame, shame is just letting ourselves down. It's a loss of self-esteem. Yeah? 
And when we recognize that these are the consequences of doing something which is harmful, and we actually feel the guilt, we get in contact with it, we let it manifest, and we feel the shame, the embarrassment, let it manifest, then they actually become our guardians. And the Buddha actually calls them our guardians of society. Because uh, when, we, when, we st- when we enter into, get close to an act which we feel is unwholesome, these two come back to remind us of our consequences. So they, they become our guardians. Hmm? Um, in the old word, they're our conscience. Hmm? So our conscience is made up of the, the knowledge of what happens when you do something harmful. So <coughs> how do we overcome that? Well, tomorrow we'll, we'll be practicing it. And that is just by, through the power of our own imagination, through the power of our own imaginative thinking, we just set up these internal dialogues and just bring ourselves round to asking for forgiveness. And then hopefully, if it's, if, it's, if it's possible, to actually do it in real life. But often, of course, uh, we may find that people have disappeared whom we've harmed years ago and all that. People die and we've still got something on our hearts that uh, sort of rankles us. And, uh, and then you begin, then you make this in, then you make this uh, insight that you don't need another person's forgiveness to be forgiven. Now that's, that's a real important insight to have. See? What you need to do is to work with these inner states and make that attitude of, of wanting to be forgiven or asking for forgiveness. And that in itself is the forgiveness. When, um, when, we, uh, when the order meets, we meet every... When there's a group of four, there has to be four monks, uh, four nuns. Um, when we meet every uh, quarter, half moon, when we meet every half moon, um, we, we, we confess. And most of the transgressions of our rule are forgiven on the confession. There's no sort of, you know, uh, tied to the post and whipped. <laughs> it's, just, it's just having, having stated what you've done. But the, the response is, do you see what you've done? In other words, do you accept what you've done? And your response is, well, yes, I do. And then the response is, uh, do you undertake not to break that rule again? See? So there's a commitment to, to try and change your ways. So uh, just the ability to, you know, to state clearly that one has done wrong is in fact the, the process of, of self-forgiving, of being forgiven. Yeah? If you can put it right, if you've done something wrong which you can actually put right, all the better. Then you stop the karmic flow. So, for instance, if you said a sharp word to somebody, you know, and you know they're glowering, they're sort of using it behind you and all that, <laughs> then just to go up and say, look, I'm sorry for that, it immediately cuts the flow of that bad karma. Yeah, very simple to do. But if you've got too much pride, if you feel you are righteous, if, you know, you, you should have been even more cruel, then of course it just, it just keeps going. <laughs> There's no end to it. When it comes to uh, forgiving those who've hurt us, so we're on the <coughs> on the receiving end. So just consider that point where somebody has said something which has you know annoyed you a bit, and how we keep repeating the insult over and over again, you know, till it really builds up into this huge fire, and you have to take an aspirin. And it's that it's that, uh, and then what you realise is that you're creating your own mental state. This is the point. Yeah? And as soon as you realize that, well, you say, well, you know, do I have to do this? Do I have to, you know, 
turn something like that into a huge sort of drama. So it's again this ability to forgive and um, it helps to, uh, to understand forgiveness um, because now having forgiven somebody you realize that they are suffering either from callousness, right, which leads to, you know, things like being lonely because nobody wants to know somebody who's sarcastic and audible. <laughs> or they're suffering themselves from feelings of guilt and shame. Okay? So there's, that's, that's your compassion. Okay? That's where your compassion comes in. You're standing as a person. So you also want to release them from their guilt and shame. Okay? So you offer them that opportunity by saying, you know, look, uh, let's forget that. Sorry it happened, but, you know, I forgive you and all that. And uh, we do that when we realize that in the act of forgiving, forgiving, we completely empty the heart of all that rubbish that we've, that we've burned up in there. See? And that the more you do it, the easier it's to do. It just becomes a habit so that there comes a point in our lives when even as the insult is given, the forgiveness arises with it. So there's never any pain around that. I mean, there's a lovely <laughs> image the Buddha gives of, uh, you know, somebody set upon by uh, thieves and cut from limb to limb with their machete. And he says, if at any point hatred should arise or anger, they're no disciple of mine. <laughs> and when I once said this in the group, they, well, somebody said, well, the Buddha had a great sense of humor. I said, <laughs> I said, he might have had that. I think he actually means what he says. Uh, there is a way of, of, of receiving uh, harm from somebody which is which is um, doesn't bring that energy of anger from us and that is where we begin to understand really the psychology of nonviolence see it's only when you realize that nobody can actually make you angry they can hurt your body sticks and stones may hurt my bones and all that um, but nobody can actually cause you internal suffering and therefore <coughs> You're ready to, act, to, in a way, you become, you absorb their anger. You see, you absorb their anger, <coughs> and uh, I'm sure you've, you've you've experienced that in your in your life, where somebody's come at you angrily, and you've just said, "Oh, I'm sorry," and that "I'm sorry" just just actually taking responsibility for that moment just drains the anger out. Whereas if you'd have stood your ground and sort of butted them, then you'd have got into some sort of rage, a road rage or something. Now you may not have been uh, you may not have been guilty. It might have been somebody else who did it. You see, but you prove that afterwards. You see, <laughs> but the important thing is is to undermine the anger by receiving it. You know, which is difficult. It's difficult. Our normal reaction is to defend ourselves. So uh, um, this business of forgiving somebody, you see, we get confused, we think it's some, we think we're trying to forget it, you see, but trying to forget something is, is just another way of suppressing it, and we know that suppression doesn't do us any good, and <coughs> just lies there as a turbulence within the mind, you know, within the heart. Sometimes we, we get the, we, we think we have to excuse them, but if somebody's robbed from us, they've robbed from us, full stop. I have to excuse it, they've been robbers. <laughs> they've done, they've done an evil thing. There's no, you don't have to Lessen, lessen their act, but but you can forgive them for it, yeah, and and you can ask for you can ask for compensation for heaven's sake, if you feel it's right, without without uh, you know feeling that you're being um, vengeful, yeah. And it's not sometimes 
we get uh, a feeling of, of letting them off, almost in a sense condoning what they did, because we get into this business of punishment. You often hear these politicians saying, you know, putting pe people in prison for punishment and all that. Punishment doesn't uh, hold any water in Buddhist understanding because <coughs> uh, whenever you do something harmful, there's always some harmful results. So punishment is coming from some other center. It's coming from some center of where you're trying to frighten the person so that they'll never do that again, a sort of deterrence. You know, you cut your, cut your hand off if you steal. I mean, that works, is the point. But the, the, uh, the punishment can't fit the crime. If it fits the crime, then you'll have another go. So if the punishment is to be a deterrent, it's got to be something which really doesn't make the crime worth it. And they found this in, in you know, these psychological tests at, um, where they've done this business of uh, punishment and crime on a very low level, of course. And, and they found that the, the punishment has to really exceed uh, the, pro the, the proceeds of the crime. So it doesn't work. And of course, the other thing about uh, punishment is that it's, it's a way of slaking our, our vengefulness. And that doesn't work either. You know, uh, people in the United States, in some states, you can see the murderer or the person who's murdered and all that. You can actually be at their uh, execution. <clears throat> and the case is that people come out, like, you know, if, if you're one of your family members has been killed and, and all that, they come out, they've not been satisfied. You know, they wanted it to be more painful because there's no, because that's the problem with revenge, isn't it? You can't satisfy hatred. Hatred eats on hatred. It feeds itself on hatred. So <clears throat> these people who actually want to see somebody suffering are simply growing in cruelty. They themselves are becoming more cruel than the criminal. So punishment doesn't, uh, you know, hold water. So now. Since you can't, since we, you know, if you come to the understanding that you can't punish somebody, and there's no point in, in eating your own heart out because somebody's harmed you, even going back to childhood, remember, then that process of forgiving somebody, you know, and it helps to stand in the person's shoes. And we can do that more when we move into that third category, which is forgiving ourselves. And for what we've done to ourselves, you know, through... Uh, whatever it might be, overeating, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that sort of stuff. And forgiving ourselves is probably the most difficult uh, thing to do. And uh, it helps to understand that all our unwholesome actions have arisen because of a mistake. This is really a crucial, important understanding. The Buddha's word, he begins the, the process of our psychology with the word avidya, which means um, translated as ignorance. But ignorance gives you uh, the impression that you're at fault. You know, you should have known, you're just ignorant. But it's not. The word is neutral. You simply don't know. And out of that not knowing, there's, there's been a mistake. And the mistake is who we really are. And the mistake is to believe that we really are human beings, that we really are this body, this mind, this heart. And by doing so, we then have to seek happiness, which is what all the heart wants, it wants peace and happiness, in the world. And, one, and how can you do that apart from accumulating things? See, the self has to feel safe, so it feels safe by having big bank accounts and, and having a, a very secure job and a very secure relationship. That's how it feels safe. <clears throat> but of course, as soon as you accumulate something, 
you're in conflict with other people who want what you've got. So uh, the accumulation leads you immediately into a, into a conflictual relationship with life. And then you find that you have to guard what you, what you, what you have. And there's your, your fear and anxiety. You have to get rid of people who seem to be undermining your happiness. And so the whole battle is, is you know, you, you enter into this whole battle that we call, <laughs> that we call life. Now, once you realize it's been a mistake, then it takes away this, this feeling of being essentially evil, right? And the knowledge is that just as this not knowing through the practice of uh, vipassana, through the practice of this spiritual practice, ends up at knowing, is what we call wisdom. From the heart's point of view, it's begun at a point of innocence. It didn't know. It made a mistake, just like a child might, you know, light a match and burn a house down. It simply, you know, it's a bit cruel to put it in jail. And that innocence is corrupted because of this wrong understanding. And then we end up with all this suffering. Then we get to a point where the suffering is so great, we think, I better do some meditation. So then you start meditating and you come back on the process. You devolve. But that process is not back to an original ignorant uh, sorry, not knowing innocence, it now returns to a purity which matches the wisdom. That's why in the spiritual life you cannot grow in wisdom without growing in virtue. The two go together. The one is dependent on the mind and the other depends on the heart. See? So when you find yourself balking against the, the, the precepts, that is a measure to us of our delusion, of our mistake. So, uh, recognizing that is the first step. And the second one is this business of there's no need to punish ourselves. All we have to do is bear with the consequences of things that we've done wrong. And that's all we have to do. So, uh, I know somebody who, just by a simple mistake, it wasn't even it wasn't anything uh, evil or wrong or something. He just wanted to listen to music. And he, he actually put... Um, the musical instrument he was playing, he put it right next to his ear. Well, of course, over a period of time, it actually damaged his ear and gave him this terrible tinnitus. And then he had this struggle of hating it and fighting it and whatnot. And by undermining that process and just bearing with it and seeing it as a consequence of delusion, yeah, then it's just there as this little background whistling. <laughs> it doesn't impinge upon his life anymore. And that's the same with people who, you know... Are, are suddenly disabled in some way. See, if they, if, if the if the disability is not accepted, if the dis- if if they're constantly fighting it, then they're just driving themselves into despair. And and as you know, in case some cases, suicide. But once it's accepted totally and it becomes part and parcel of the way they live, then it just doesn't undermine your the quality of life. Simple as that. So this process of self-forgiveness is, uh, is really important. So that's the process that we're going through. We're, we're developing the heart of goodwill, developing the heart of compassion, and then we turn it. We turn it uh, through, the, through the process of forgiveness to correct our relationship to the world uh, where there's been harm, either done to us or by us to others or by us to ourselves. <coughs> And remember that this, 
You can't do all this in a weekend, I'm saying. This is a process that you have to take with you into your daily life. Yeah? <coughs> and I think you'll find that the more you practice it, uh, you'll get the benefits, tremendous, tremendous benefits. And it's not as though you have to go at it all the time. It's the constant little bits, like in the morning, you know, and during the day when, <coughs> when you feel a bit upset about something, to immediately go into the process of forgiveness. And it's just that those little points that just very slowly over a period of time just, just change us completely. It's the persistence of practice that's important. Doing it whenever the occasion arises. So I think that uh, draws me to the end of my little homily. A bit longer than I thought, but there we are. So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.